Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have Him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, He was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to Me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And He took the children in His arms, put His hands on them, and blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, We've left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Many who follow God want to impress Him. We hope that He values what we bring to the table. And there's something about this young man that's loaded with that. See, wealth in the ancient world is, is more than, than just having things. It's status, it's standing, it's security, and it comes in all kinds of various forms. It can be in the form of land, which was pretty common in Jesus' day. It could be in terms of acquaintances and friends who are powerful. It could be a lot of funds and, and liquid wealth, though that was rarer in those days. It could come with power in the society, success at having accomplished something, popularity, today trophies, awards, recognitions, whatever it is, this person is loaded with it. Now we'll notice that Mark doesn't call him young or a ruler. Those are uh, adjectives that are given by other Gospels. I think Matthew calls him a ruler and Luke calls him young. Here he's just a man who proves to be wealthy. But whoever he was, he was a man of significance. A man of prestige. And he comes to Jesus to present him with at least three assets that he has, that maybe not everybody does, for the kingdom. Three assets, and we're going to talk about each of them. His conformity to the law, his resources, and his legacy. We're going to start with his conformity 
So he comes to Jesus. We can tell he's a man of means just by the way the story begins. Uh, he doesn't, as some other folks have, talk to the disciples and ask for an audience with Jesus. Right? He doesn't go to Peter and say, can I talk to your master? That's happened several times. He doesn't ask if it's okay to interrupt him. He doesn't call out for Jesus. This man walks straight up to him. And the first thing he offers to Jesus is his conformity to the law. Jesus, here's my conformity to the law. But Jesus responds to him in this strange way. If you have your Bible still open, you can look again at verse 18. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. This is going well. But Jesus starts out with that very strange phrase. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why would Jesus suggest that good is not a word that should be used of humans? Now, of course, we know Jesus is more than human, but there's no evidence in Mark that anybody else knew that at this point. Jesus hasn't even told his disciples that he's any more than a great prophet, maybe the Messiah. But he certainly has not revealed to them that he's God in the flesh. That is a revelation yet to come. Some think Jesus was being a little acerbic in that response, that he sent something in the guy, and so he gets a little cheeky with him. Others think that he was just, Jesus was just trying to knock him a bit off balance, that what he sensed was a bit of arrogance or superiority here, and he just wanted to kind of make him a little uneasy, so he was more apt to hear what Jesus was going to say to him. For myself, I agree with those scholars who suspect that Jesus was trying to correct a theological error, an error about God and humanity, about sin and righteousness, that apparently was carried in Judaism, and this man was putting forward before him. And it was the idea that obedience to the law, conformity to the law, would make us good. I think there's enough here in the text to assume that this man believed himself to be good. It might have been one of the reasons he had the courage to walk up to Jesus at all. But let's not forget the divorce passage that we talked about last week when Jesus made a revelation that maybe still hasn't quite settled for some. Certainly hadn't settled for the disciples. And it was that the, the law about divorce was written just because human hearts were hard. Which introduces the idea that you could perfectly follow the law of Moses and still not be good. That you could still fall short of God's will for us and for humanity even with perfect obedience to the law. This makes sense when Jesus says, no human can be good. Goodness should not be confused with conformity to the law. Jesus roots goodness only in God. He probably never did break any of the laws. Jesus doesn't question it. In fact, Jesus loves him after he says it. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 to 15, we find these words. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11. Now what I'm commanding you today, this is talking about the law of Moses, matter of fact, this is the end of the law. Now what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you, or beyond your reach. It's not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it, and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea, so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it, and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart, so you may obey it. And then we have to explain the failure of Israel to obey, not out of impossibility, but out of refusal. And the same 
belief system that we see in this man who believed himself to be good because he obeyed the law. We see it in Paul too, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament book of Philippians. He writes these words in chapter 3 of Philippians verses 4 through 6. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless, Paul says of himself. I don't think the problem with the rich young ruler is that he was arrogant and assumed himself to be better than he was. I think he probably did obey every aspect of the law he understood his whole life. Here's my conformity to the law, Jesus. No one is good but God alone. Well, how about my resources? What does Jesus say to that? Chapter 10, verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad, because he had great wealth. Jesus' ministry was an itinerant one. He traveled all over Israel. He had no real home base. I mean, he called Capernaum home, but he was not there very often. And there were certainly expenses associated with that ministry. All of his disciples had given up their professions and had followed him. And you've got a crowd of people following him. I mean, there are expenses. And we, we get that in the Gospels. In Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, for instance, we're told that there were some women who financially supported Jesus throughout his ministry, and, and they're listed by name. In most religious circles... A man of means like this would have been sought after by teachers because he could fund the mission. But not with Jesus. Jesus tells him something, perhaps not initially surprising, because if I read Plato and Socrates and some of the history of the ancient world correctly, it probably wouldn't have been surprising initially for the teacher to say, go sell everything you have. But what would you expect him to say next? Give it to the ministry, and then you can follow me. But that's not what Jesus says, right? He shocks him. He says, sell everything you have, give it away. Then you can follow me. <clears throat> Wealth is, is power. It's, it's access. It's prestige. But Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to divest yourself of that stuff. Here's my conformity, Jesus, to the law. No one's good but God alone. Well, how about my resources then, Jesus? Certainly these could help. If you give them away, I'll consider it. And finally, have you heard of my legacy, Jesus? Look again at verse 22. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard! It is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? 
There's a story that was brought up in the Middle Ages by a monk that has absolutely no historical merit, but it's perpetuated itself in the church that there was a gate called the Eye of the Needle in Jerusalem and that a camel could only get through it by taking all of its bags off and getting down on its knees and walking through under great difficulty. Now, who knows if that, that might be there today. I don't know if there is, but there's no historical evidence that such a gate ever existed in Jesus' day. In fact, there are rabbinic sayings that are just like Jesus that talk about the impossibility of going God's way on our own. So we want to dispel the myth that Jesus is just saying this hard, that this is hard. He's saying it's impossible. And the question is why? Well, wealth was more than a sign of God's blessing in the ancient world. It was more than material means and security. It was even more than position and power. Wealth was legacy. And it was passed down in families. Once a family got the land, got the power, got the wealth, it became the job of the successive generations to make sure it never left the family. Wealth in Jesus' day was history. So Jesus wasn't only telling this guy to give away his present and his future, but his past as well. Give away your history. Give away all your grandfathers and great-grandfathers and great-great-grandfathers worked for. Give it away. And then you can follow me. Few things, in fact, in life lead us to refuse to follow Jesus entirely, like our legacy. Here's my conformity, Jesus. No one's good but God alone. Can you try again? Well, here's my wealth. This would help. My resources. Well, I guess you could give those away. Well, what about my legacy? Do you know of my family? Well, why don't you just get rid of it all and start from scratch and then we'll talk about it. Now, this panics the disciples. But I think the heart of this whole story, and it's really been the theme of the gospel according to Mark till now, is that there really is nothing we can bring to Jesus that will impress him. There's really nothing we can contribute to the kingdom. When Jesus called those disciples, he didn't call them because they had particular skill sets that he was interested in exploiting for kingdom use. How do I know that? Because it's consistent with God's character. You remember the story of Jacob? He doesn't choose us because we have some skill set he's interested in exploiting. He doesn't choose us because he sees something of value in us that he thinks, you know, that'll make my kingdom better. That's not the story of the gospel. The story of the gospel is he calls to us, and when we follow, he begins to equip us. But we have a hard time with that. We are convinced that what God is most interested in is our product and not our faithfulness. That he wants to see what we've built and not who we were while we were building it. We get awful caught up in building things for God. And I think that's where the children come into this story. Kids don't try to build permanent. They, build a, they make a wonderful picture, and the next day the next picture is more important than the last one. There's something childlike about the fact that now is more important than tomorrow. We have to become like children. 
if we want to follow Jesus. See, that's the problem and the difficulty with prestige and with wealth and with trying to build things and establish things. It's that we, it's constant fear. It won't be good enough. It won't last long enough. It won't be strong enough. It won't be successful enough. Jesus will be disappointed with me because I'm not giving him what I need to give him. And he's going to look at me and he's going to say those words at the end of time that I want to hear said, well done, my good and faithful servant. And I'm going to have to have something to show for it on that day. And Jesus is telling his disciples over and over and over again, I'm not interested in what you can give me. I just want you to be faithful. And what does faithfulness look like? It looks like loving people who don't love us. It looks like stepping aside from that desire for vengeance and starting to learn what it looks like to live into forgiveness. It looks like believing that what we want to do in our hearts is as important as what we do with our hands and to allow God to sanctify us through and through. This journey with Jesus is what matters, not what we do or what we build or what lasts or how long or how successful. He uses us so long as we are faithful. There's a passage in Ecclesiastes, I think, that summarizes this. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 10 to 20. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This, too, is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart, and what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness, with great frustration, affliction, and anger. This is what I've observed to be good that it's appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. This world is for the fire. There is nothing we will build here that will last into eternity. And the myth that it will, by hoping what we do, will outlive our own lives, is a myth that we must divest ourselves of. Nothing will last. Nothing can we take with us. What God asks of us is our faithfulness, wherever we are and in whatever we do. We don't need to ask, was I successful? We need to ask, was I faithful? And that, in the end, is what matters to our God. We don't even need to look for God's will for us. We need to live faithfully as we go, wherever we go, however we go, in whatever capacity we go. Jesus doesn't want us to contribute. He wants us to follow. To live into Him. To be faithful with what He's entrusted to our care. And to serve those who are lost and who are hurting. This is the kingdom. And it's all he asks.